With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to the Law of Attraction Radio Network. Are you ready to change your life in the next 30 minutes? It's time for Power in a Half Hour with Coach Mark. Get your notebooks ready. He's about to go in. Five, four, three, two, one. Coach Mark, let's go. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in. This is Coach Mark, and you're listening to Power in a Half Hour. In the next 30 minutes, we're going to learn the tips, tricks, and techniques of the rich and the super-duper successful. So the quote that we're going to start today's show with is, There will be haters, doubters, non-believers, and there will be you proving them wrong. I love that quote. Let me say it again. There will be haters. Yes, they will. There will be doubters. Yes, there will. There will be non-believers, and then there will be you proving them wrong, all right? The title of today's show is, When the Haters Tell You to Quit, Prove Them Wrong. Seven tips for overcoming doubt and dealing with critics, all right? We're all going to have critics, and we're all going to have doubters, but guess what? We are going to prove them wrong. I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to remind you, the, if you want to go back and re-listen to any of the previous shows, you can go to my website, www.powerhh.com. That's www.powerhh.com. If we're not friends on Facebook, my name on Facebook is Mark Starr. That's M-A-R-K-S-T-A-R-R. On Instagram and Twitter, it's at Coach Mark Speaks, all right? And we also have the Power and a Half Hour Facebook group. So if you're not a part of that and would love to get our daily and weekly videos, make sure that you send a request. Let's do a search on Facebook for Power and a Half Hour, and I would love to have you in our group, all right? For those of my listeners in the United States, I have a daily message service. And to get those messages for absolutely free, all you have to do is text the letters BBD to 411247. That's BBD to 411247. All right. And if you want to also go back and re-listen to any of the previous shows, I also in the iTunes podcast section. So just go to iTunes podcast and do a search for Coach Mark or Power in a Half Hour. And if you have not downloaded my book yet, you can download it for free at www.repeataftermebook.com. We have an absolutely amazing show today. So let's go ahead and get started. Profile number one, Connor McGregor. Now, Connor was born in Dublin, Ireland. Growing up in Ireland, Connor learned how to fight in the streets. Connor began kickboxing at the age of 12. At the same time, he started going to a local boxing club where he would find his niche. His father supported his boxing in the beginning, and his parents always felt that he would be a fighter as he came out of his mother's womb with his fists clenched. Although his father supported him as a boxer, he wanted to be sure that Connor was guaranteed a good job in the future, so he got Connor a plumbing apprenticeship. When Connor found out about mixed martial arts at the age of 16, he began training for it religiously. Connor knew that plumbing wasn't for him, and after 18 months at the apprenticeship, he quit to pursue a career as a mixed martial artist. Connor, at the age of 18, would start his career in MMA. 
For years, he would struggle as he was broke with no money pursuing his passion. At the time, Connor was earning 85 pounds a fight, which is equivalent of $110. This guy was getting in the ring, either beating somebody's tail or getting his tail beaten by somebody for $110. For the next five years, from 2008 to 2013, Connor would average 1,300 pounds per year, the equivalent of less than 1,700 U.S. dollars. This man was pursuing his dream for five years. For five years, he made an average of 1,300 pounds a year, the equivalent of 1,700 U.S. dollars. Most of us couldn't even survive off of that in one month. That's all this man was making for five years pursuing his dream, $1,700 a year. That's how dedicated he was to his dream. For five years, that's all the man was making was $1,700 a year. Now, during this time, Connor would have to live off of welfare, receiving food stamps just to be able to eat. All of this would change when Dana White, the president of the USC, was visiting Ireland and heard about Connor. Everyone was telling him about this fighter, and Dana decided to fly Connor to Las Vegas for a meeting. After their meeting, the UFC decided to sign Connor to a multi fight deal. Connor has gone on to become the biggest mixed martial arts fighter in the world. Connor became the first fighter in the UFC's history to hold titles in two divisions simultaneously. This man, that from 2008 to 2013 lived off of welfare, averaging less than $1,700 a year in earnings, is now worth over $22 million. Let's now take a look at what we can learn from this amazing fighter. Number one, love what you do. When Connor was asked what makes him such a good fighter, he says that fighting is in his head 24-7. He can't stop thinking about it. Everything that he does is related to fighting, and he doesn't do anything that has nothing to do with it. Connor says that he doesn't work. He loves what he does, so in turn, he gets to do what he loves every single day. That's why doing whatever it is that you are passionate about, doing whatever it is that you love is so very important because that's how you can manage only making $1,700 a year off of it because you love what you do and you believe in yourself and you know eventually you're going to make it. Number two, have the courage to speak up. Connor says that a lot of times people believe in certain things, but they keep it to themselves. They don't put it out there. If you truly believe in it, become vocal with it, and then you create that law of attraction, and it will become a reality. Number three, believe. When asked if at the beginning of his career someone told him that he would be as successful as he is now, what would he say to them? Without hesitation, Connor says, I would tell them I believe you. Connor says he did believe. There were only a small amount of people that believed that he would be successful, so he would constantly remind himself that he was going to be successful. Number four, create your own footsteps. At the age of 18, Connor began a plumbing apprenticeship, and he was unsure of his future. Connor didn't know anything about plumbing. He just did it because he felt that's what society was telling him that he should do, get a secure job so he could make a living. He did it for a while before he realized that this wasn't what he wanted to do, so he would eventually quit his plumbing job. 
in the beginning, it was hard because he couldn't tell his mother that if this Irish man can do it, I can do it too. Because at the time, there was no successful Irish MMA fighter. So he had to create his own footsteps and follow them. His parents were unsure in the beginning, but they knew that if he said he would make it, he would make it. Number five, push forward. Connor says that even though he is in an amazing position in his life, he still works like he's still fighting to become the champion. He's always pushing forward. Number six, work hard. Connor says that hard work pays. That's why he's sitting at the top. No one, and I mean absolutely no one, works harder than him. Number seven, make it happen. When Connor first decided that he would quit his plumbing apprenticeship, he and his dad would get into fist fights because his dad was mad that he was wasting away his life. People would call him a waster. Connor used this to help him to focus, and once he began to focus, he decided to just make it happen. In an interview, he says that his dad would come into the room and say, get up, it's time for work. And he said, I'm not going to work. I'm an MMA fighter. And his dad would just punch him in the head. Him and his dad would literally get into fist fights every single day. But guess what? This guy was so passionate about what he was going to do. He was not going to allow anyone or anything to stop him. Number eight, learn from your experiences. Connor says that everything has been a learning experience for him. Everything he learned before he got to the UFC prepared him for the success that he's having now in the UFC. And number nine, Connor says that people have been laughing for his entire career. People first doubted that he could win the Cage Warriors world title. Then they laughed at the thought of an Irishman winning a fight in the UFC. Then they laughed again at the thought of an Irishman winning a world title. Then he got more laughter when he said he wanted to win a second world title. Connor says that he uses the sound of laughter and the sound of doubt to motivate him. Motivate him to put in the work to continue to succeed. And number 10, prove them wrong. Connor says that when he first started in MMA, everyone thought that he was just getting in cages fighting people. No one really knew what he was doing. He says that no one had to know because he knew what he was doing. He says that there were a lot of stressful years, but he proved them wrong and he proved himself right. This man sacrificed for five years going after his dream. For five years, he was making less than $2,000 a year living on welfare. Now, how many of us could commit to whatever it is that we're passionate about like that for five years? And still be able to work your tail off to prepare to get yourself in a position so when your opportunity did come, you were able to take full advantage of it. That's what he did. That's why that man is where he's at right now. Profile number two, Brian Koppelman. Brian was born in, a, in New York to a Jewish family. As a teenager, he began managing local bands in Long Island. He would also book bands at a local nightclub. While booking bands, Brian came into contact with Eddie Murphy and helped arrange Eddie's first record deal. After high school, Brian attended Tufts University. Now, while a student at Tufts, he discovered the singer-songwriter Tracy Chapman. Tracy had a huge following in the local area, but when Brian brought record executives to watch Tracy perform, they all rejected her. Brian says that the record company execs would come up from New York to watch her 
and be personally moved by her performance as they would have tears in their eyes after they would hear her sing. They would even want to meet her. And as Brian would walk them back to their cars, they would thank him for a night that they would always remember. And then they would say, you know that we can't possibly sign her. Brian would be confused and would ask why they would all say the same thing. They would say, she's black and she seems very masculine. What Brian realized was that although they may have been rationally correct because no one had ever came out that was like her, they were all still wrong. Brian eventually got Tracy signed to Electra Records. Even the record label that finally signed her, Electra Records, didn't feel that she would sell a lot of records in the beginning. They felt that her first album would just be a good start for her career. Well, all the executives were wrong. Tracy's first album was released in 1988, and two weeks after its release, the album sold one million copies worldwide. In total, the album sold over 20 million copies worldwide and is one of the first albums by a female artist to have more than 10 million copies sold worldwide. After the success of Tracy, Brian became an A&R representative for Electra Records, Giant Records, SBK Records, and EMI Records. Brian did this for 10 years and became very unhappy with the life that he was living. One day, he went into a poker club in New York City and heard the way that people spoke and saw the way that they looked and realized that this could be a movie. He then went to his wife and his best friend and made a plan to be able to continue to work, but to write this movie script in the mornings. Now, this is very important for all my people that are listening that have a regular day job, but still want to pursue something else. Listen to what this guy did. His wife cleared out a storage space under their apartment. At the time, Brian and his best friend, Dave, had no contacts in the movie business. They would meet every morning for two hours, six days a week. The only day that they would take off was Sundays. Other than Sundays, they never missed a morning. Now, at the time, Dave was bartending and Brian had his regular day job in the music industry and had just finished law school by taking night classes. The storage space that they worked in was so small, it didn't even have space for two chairs. Brian would sit on the floor while Dave sat at the typewriter. They would have a stack of books that they would read about poker and the language of the game, and they would just sit in the room and write six days a week for two hours every single morning before they went to work. At night, they would go to poker clubs and collect data. They would collect lines that people said, stories that they told them, and character traits. They wanted to be able to write a screenplay that could be turned into a movie that people at the time would want to quote to each other. When they finished, they had the movie Rounders. At the time, they had a young manager that pitched it to every agent in Hollywood. Every single agency rejected the movie. After a while, the movie was eventually bought by Miramax. The movie went on to gross $22.9 million in the U.S. Now, after their success, Brian and his partner Dave would go on to write, direct, and produce Knockaround Guys and also work on dozens of other films, including Ocean's 13. Now, in 2015, Brian, his partner Dave, and New York Times columnist Andrew Ross Sorkin created the hit drama series for Showtime called Billions, one of my personal favorite shows. In 2014, Brian won an Emmy Award for his 30 for 30 documentary that he directed for ESPN. Now, this story is so important because here it is. This guy had a regular day job. 
but he was so committed to writing that movie that him and his buddy every single morning for six days a week would commit two hours to working on their project. Every morning, they did not miss one morning. The only mornings that they didn't work were Sunday mornings. And they got it done, and now they're some of the biggest writers in Hollywood. Now, unfortunately, many people allow the so-called experts to lead them off of their paths. What we have to realize is that most time, these experts usually have it all wrong. Most of the experts rarely look outside the box. They usually only go with ideas that are safe, ideas that are similar to what everyone else is already doing. If we never looked outside the box, there would be no innovation. We would be doing the exact same things and having the same experiences that people were having at the beginning of time. Let's now take a look at some of the ways that the so-called experts have gotten it wrong over the years. Number one, the Beatles auditioned for Decca Records in 1962 in North London. They told the Beatles manager that they didn't like their sound and that the group of guitars were on their way out. Well, we all know how that story turned out for Decca Records. The Beatles went on to become the best-selling band in history with estimated worldwide sales of over 600 million albums. Can you imagine? Decca Records is kicking themselves for the last 50-odd years. Number two. Jimmy Leonard, the president of a record company, once said that although he enjoyed listening to a young Madonna and the direction was good, the only thing missing from her project is the material. He said that he doesn't feel like she's ready yet. Madonna went on to sell more than 300 million records worldwide and is recognized as the best-selling female recording artist of all time. In 1979... RSO Records told the band U2 that they weren't interested in them and they wished them luck in their career. U2 has since sold over 200 million records. Lady Gaga was signed to Def Jam and after only three months, she was dropped from the label. L.A. Reid, the head of the label at the time, describes it as the biggest mistake of his career. Lady Gaga has gone on to become one of the best-selling musicians of all time, selling 27 million albums and 146 million singles worldwide. Now, the entertainment industry execs aren't the only so-called experts that get it wrong. Let's now look at how some of the biggest venture capital firms pass on what would become some of the biggest companies. Bessemer Venture Partners, the longest-standing venture capital practice in the United States, said this of eBay. Stamps, coins, common books, you got to be kidding. This is a no-brainer. I'll pass on this one. eBay is currently valued at over $31 billion. And this is the longest venture capital company that's out there. And they passed on eBay in the beginning. This is, wasn't the only mistake that Bessemer has made. One of the partners at Bessemer called the pre-IPO shares of Apple outrageously expensive after having the chance to invest at a $60 million valuation. This man had a chance to invest in Apple when Apple was only worth $60 million. 
Now Apple is worth over 10,000 times that. That means for every $1 that they would have invested, it would be worth $10,000. Apple has a valuation of over $800 billion. These people had an opportunity to invest when they were only worth $60 million, and now they're worth over $800 billion. They're going to be the first company to be worth $1 trillion. A $1 million investment would be worth over $13.3 billion, and they passed on them. These people are supposed to be experts, but they passed on Apple. In 2004, another partner at Bessemer Ventures spent a weekend at a retreat avoiding a Harvard student who was relentlessly trying to pitch him on a social media company that he just co-founded. Finally, the partner snapped and told the student, kid, haven't you heard of Friendster? Move on. It's over for you. That student was Eduardo Saverin. The company he was trying to pitch was Facebook. What a huge mistake that was. Fred Wilson of Union Square Ventures dismissed Airbnb because he just couldn't get behind the idea of air mattresses on the living room floor. Airbnb is now worth over $31 billion. Another expert gets it all wrong. Kevin Rose, the co-founder of Dig, had an opportunity to invest in Pinterest when it was valued at $5 million. At the time, he thought that was way too high. Pinterest is now worth $11 billion, over 2,000 times what Kevin could have got in at. John Greathouse of Ring Convention Partners refused to listen to Uber's founder, Travis Kalanick's pitch. He is surely regretting that now as Uber is now valued at over $70 billion. Ron Conway of Angel Investors passed on Salesforce because he thought its $30 million valuation seemed too high at the time. Salesforce is currently valued at $62 billion. Now, these aren't the only things that experts have gotten wrong. The reason why I'm sharing so many examples is because many times we allow the wrong advice of experts to disrupt our progress. When an expert or critic tells us that our idea won't work, we usually allow that criticism to kill our enthusiasm. Many times we all come up with great ideas and great plans to only abort them because someone feels that it may not work. We must not listen to them. Let me repeat that. We must not listen to them. We must follow our hearts and our inner guide. If we don't, we will never get anything done because you will never have 100% of the people confirm whatever it is that you're trying to do. As a general rule for myself, if the majority of people understand or agree with my plan, I don't usually look on that plan as a winner. I look to go back to the drawing board and come up with an edgier, more disruptive plan. We must never forget that scholars and experts at the time thought that Earth was flat. In 1876, Western Union, one of the biggest companies at the time, in an internal memo to its staff said that the telephone has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication. They said that this device is inherently of no value to us. Thomas Watson, the chairman of IBM in 1943, said that he thinks that there's a world market for maybe only five computers. How many computers are out now? Almost every household in America has a computer. Probably over two, three billion households all over the world has a computer. And here it is. The head of IBM said that there would probably be a market for only five computers. 
1903, the president of the Michigan Savings Bank advised Henry Ford's lawyer not to invest in the Ford Motor Company, saying that the horse is here to stay and that the automobile is only a novelty, a fad. Derek Zanuck, a movie producer for the 20th Century Fox, said in 1946 that the television won't last because people will soon get tired of staring at a plywood box every night. W.C. Hooper of the National Cancer Institute said in 1954 that if excessive smoking actually plays a role in the production of lung cancer, it seems to be a minor one. And in 1955, Variety magazine said that rock and roll would be gone by June of that year. So now that we know how wrong the critics usually are, let's look at seven ways that we can deal with criticism. Number one, ask yourself, what can I learn from the criticism? Most criticism is sometimes based at least in part on some truths. Criticism may appear negative, but through criticism, we have the opportunity to learn and improve from their suggestion. Number two, respond to the suggestions, not the tone of the criticism. The problem is that even though people may make valuable critical suggestions, their tone and style of criticism causes us to not respond to the suggestions, but only remember their confrontational manner. In this situation, we need to separate the criticism from the style of criticism. Even if people speak in a tone of anger, we should try to detach their emotion from the useful suggestions which lie underneath. Number three, value criticism. Oftentimes, we only value praise. When people speak kind words, we feel good. When they criticize, we feel miserable. We have to remember that if we only received insincere praise and false flattery, we would never make any progress. If we desire to improve and develop, we should welcome constructive criticism and appreciate their suggestions. Number four, don't take it personally. This is often the biggest problem which occurs with regard to criticism. We must not identify ourselves with whatever aspect of ourselves someone is criticizing. Number five, ignore false criticism. Sometimes we are criticized with no justification. The best thing we can do is ignore it and give it no attention. When we acknowledge it and try to fight it, we give it more importance than it deserves. Number six, don't respond immediately. It is best to wait a little before responding. If we respond with feelings of anger or injured pride, we will usually regret it. If we can wait patiently, it will help us to respond in a calmer way. And number seven, smile. Smiling, even if it's a fake smile, will help us to relax. Smiling will also motivate the other person to modify their approach. All right, well, that's all that we have for this show. Want to remind you, you can go back and re-listen to not only this show, but any of the previous shows at www.powerhh.com. That's www.powerhh.com. Now, I know you have three friends that could have benefited from what we talked about today. Yes, you do. Maybe some of your friends are the critics and the doubters that we talked about today. Make sure you share this with them. Tell them about the radio station that you're listening to this show on or tell them that they can just go to my website, www.powerhh.com or find me in the iTunes store and re-listen to the message that we talked about today. All right. We want our friends to improve and get better just as we are improving and getting better. All right. And. The quote that I'm going to end today's show with is, be thankful of the people who told you that you couldn't do it. Because of them, 
It gives you the determination to prove them all wrong. And that's exactly what we're about to do. We are about to prove all the haters and the critics wrong. All right. Thank you much. And until next show. Thanks for listening to Power in a Half Hour with Coach Mark. To listen or re-listen, go to powerinahalfhour.com. Follow Coach Mark on Instagram and Twitter at Coach Mark Speaks. Find Coach Mark on Facebook by searching for Mark Starr. Like our Facebook fan page, Power in a Half Hour. And join our Power in a Half Hour Facebook group. See you next week. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.